0: Siegen, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is Austrian-German for to pull the butt card. An expression meaning to have bad luck, apparently. okay. Uh, a lot of butt cards being handed out this weekend in F1, but sometimes that leads to exciting races. I'm Drew Scamlin. Joining me is Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Man, still high off that race. Actually, Sunday was just awesome racing,
1: wall-to-wall.
0: Just, Just what a day. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, Danny O'Dwyer is on assignment today, but he should be back next week. If you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you are new to Formula One itself, we've got an episode just for you. The preseason primer assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So we'd like to go back and listen to that. It's episode 178. Also the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com/shiftf1 where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series and a lot of weird things. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com/shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. Uh we just well our most recent episode was uh, about the Eric Bana uh, rally documentary love the Beast We have not yet decided on what we're doing uh, this month, the month of July, but if you would like to uh, send us uh, any requests or suggestions, you can do so either you know shift to podcast at gmail.com at shift to podcast on Twitter or through you know the patreon system or on discord any any of those ways that you can get at us uh, but a special shout out goes today to our uh, title sponsors. Who um, get their names read out on the show? They're sort of the the stickers on the side of this uh, this car. Uh, starting with Jason Kelly, then we've got Callum O'Neill, William Rumph, Umberto Roca, Troy Stammer, Circuit Demon, Max Voltar, Alex Goucher, Snigs, Octothorpe, Bunny Crimes. Abraham Getchell, Jason Chadwick, Abdullah Althani, Baileyfoot, Drew Stewart, David Mule, Gnarly Goat, TelemetryDuck.com, Alan McCrary, Iron Station Studios, Erica Siegel, Pyrite's Card Castle, Olivia Evans, Tanner McLeave at Talking Autos, Gordy's Army, Michael Maves at Team Blackjack, and birthday boy, Mitchie Loves Grojan. Can't argue with that. Who doesn't love the Phoenix? Uh, I can tell you...
1: I can give you several names of people who do not love uh, Roman Grosjean. What? Uh, a dude. So, okay. Hang on. Before we get to the F1 race, let me just have a little IndyCar minute. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> basically, Andretti Autosport fought an entire civil war uh, during the race at Mid Ohio this weekend. <laughs> And at the center of it appeared to be uh, Alexander Rossi, who is a lame duck there. He's being let go, and he's changing teams uh, at the end of the season. Wow. Um And he got into it multiple times with Roman Grosjean banging wheels uh, and eventually sending each other into the wall. Um Whoa. But, like, they had three collisions, and then... Grosjean also tapped Colton Herta uh, on the back tire, sent him into a spin off the track. And Alexander Rossi, I'm not sure this was another Andretti teammate, but he did also uh, tag someone else hard off the track uh, in a corner. But at the end of it, like, it got real bad. Rossi and Grosjean, apparently, it is known they despise each other. Uh, Despite being teammates and multiple people have been saying for weeks that like this thing was headed for blows. Um, And then during like with Grosjean's race destroyed, having been run off and going a full lap down, the team's like, listen, we just need you stay back there and like fight off the teams coming up to pass you so that our guys toward the front uh, have a better chance of like uh, finishing well. And Grosjean's like, I'm not blocking for Rossi. That guy destroyed my race. So, you know, not doing that. (laughs) And you'd hear his race engineers be like, Yeah, but Alexander's not a lap down, Roman. And you are. So oh, to, but it was, it was incredible. Like Roma Grosjean stormed off the track without speaking to anybody. Apparently like Michael Andretti, uh, came like tearing down a uh, gasoline alley, uh, on a scooter and pulled up to the pit box for Rossi and demanded to know where Rossi was. Wow! Uh, so remember all those like good brotherly vibes that we love about IndyCar? Mm-hmm. Uh, I am not sure they've been able to survive the searing heat of the phoenix. Uh although as as MK pointed out as we were watching it, like it sure looked like Rossi was a guy who just like road raged out multiple times during a race. Like mm. they asked him about it after and he was like, "Yeah, Roman had faster tires. Uh he was going to get around me. Uh but you know, he likes to do it fast early and hard, so you know, I just had we had to back him off." So it was just clear like didn't have pace, was getting beaten, even though Roman was on a, a less good line, and rather than let the move go through, just uh, pulled a Paul Tracy. Not, not good,
0: but but also, Drew, very good. Great. Great. So glad to hear it. Thriving Motorsports across the world. Uh, we've got a lot to get to today. So much happened, and we've got a race to tell you about uh, coming up this weekend, so let's just jump right into it. We got a wet qualifying, everyone, which is fun because it can leave cars out of position. See if you can spot those cars out of position as I read down the list here. Uh, pole position goes to Carlos Sainz. I'm not I'm not calling that an out of position. Great lap from him. His first pole position in Formula One. Uh, though it should be said, his teammates spun on the last qualifying lap, which hampered the driver behind... Well- and did you see signs? didn't car. know
1: he was he was in the hunt for Paul. That was the cutest yeah. thing. When they told him like you're on Paul, he's like wait, what? Cuz he <laughs> yeah. was convinced like it was another like Leclerc Verstappen shootout and he did not feel good about his laps. So it was also like really sweet that like completely
0: naive Paul lap. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if Leclerc hadn't spun, yeah. maybe Leclerc would have gotten it and maybe Verstappen wouldn't have had to slow for the yellow flag. Anyway, Max Verstappen lines up second, then Charlotte Leclerc in third behind them. Sergio Perez, Lewis Hamilton in fifth, then Lando Norris, Fernando Alonso, George Russell, Joe Guanyu, and Nicholas Latifi in tenth place. I should also point out, he is running the old Williams hardware while Albon, his teammate, got the new gear uh this weekend. Um Albon, though we'll get to him. Uh, it may not be the fact that he's running new gear. Um, Pierre Gasly in 11th, Valtteri Bottas, uh, Yuki Tsunoda, Daniel Ricciardo, Esteban Ocon in 15th, then Alex Albon in 16th. So after qualifying, he was complaining about doing having to do a cool down lap. Like, why were we doing a cooldown lap? So maybe it's an error in strategy there. Um, may not necessarily be those those new upgrades that that caused him to qualify in 16th. But who knows. In a wet qualifying, anything goes. Uh, Kevin Magnuson, 17th, and Sebastian Fettel, Mick Schumacher, and Lance Stroll bringing up the rear. Okay, let's get to the start, or shall I say one of the starts? Start one. Start one. Start us off, Rob.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not much to cover because there is some action at the front, Uh you know, Hamilton has a great start, picks up multiple spaces uh, right right off the line I and mean, in the first corners. But all of that is mooted by yeah. the fact that George Russell, due to his out of position qualifying, uh, had opted to start on the hard tire um, and they prepared for it to be a challenge. The thing that they had not really fully taken into account is that with the lower grip level, that's going to punish you the absolute most. Uh, coming off the starting line from a, from uh, fr- from a dead standstill, and so he's punished for that immediately as his old teammate Nicholas Latifi uh, just sort of launched himself between uh, Joe and Russell and like made the move cleanly. Like Latifi was gone before uh, Russell could even react, and then Russell really makes a poor decision uh, in my view. He tries to close that door. Uh, knowing that he's kind of bogged down and he stands a decent chance of, like, losing more positions. He tries to close the door behind Latifi. Uh, But you have to remember this is all happening, like, instantaneous. And uh, so, like, he also didn't have a lot of time to consider the decision. But also, he probably should have expected that there would be somebody else there. And in this case, uh, it was Pierre Gasly sort of trying to follow Latifi through the gap as Russell is trying to uh, seal it a little bit. And it's unclear to me how well Russell could see uh, in his mirror where Gasly was, but either way, he's trying to drift over to the left and sort of seal the gap between himself and Joe. Um, but his left rear makes contact with uh, Gasly's front end, and Russell's car slews around really violently and just whacks into Joe's uh, right hand side, right and, and, and left and right rear tire. And then a really fluky thing, uh Joe's car tips up fully on its side and then goes over. Um and goes s- like spinning and skittering down what remains of the straight and across the runoff and then has so much momentum climbs up the tire barrier uh
0: in its in its rotations before launching itself yeah, tire- into the catch uh- fence. Yeah, a tire digs into the gravel and it kind of launches him up. Because like, the gravel doesn't slow him down much at all. Maybe because he's upside down. And he's just kind of skipping across it. And then, Yeah, yeah. I, was sort of, I was sort of surprised by that, too. I figured, like, okay, like he, I
1: guess it's only one point of contact. So even though it's wildly inefficient and there's a ton of friction there, it's only concentrated at one point, And so it's not doing anything to arrest his momentum. But it was like he had full tilt uh, upside down. Uh, heading for that barrier, and yeah, just vaulted, the car vaulted over it, um, and went into the catch fencing, and it became a really uh, tricky accident to respond to, because the thing to remember is the catch fencing is about a meter, meter and a half behind the tire barrier, so there's like a little like gap between the two um you know sort of like a about the size of like a tiny like narrow alley you might find uh in between like two dense suburban yeah it's like an access yeah it's like yeah it's uh about crawl space width almost um and so his car ends up on its side um, resting there, and he's sort of pinned between the catch fencing and the tire barrier. And so it turns into a pretty tricky and lengthy extraction. Uh, race is immediately red flagged. Um, the funny thing here is because it happened so quickly, all the cars never made it to the second safety car line, I gather, which is at the end of the pit. This is the explanation that Kravitz and uh, Crofty gave on the on the air. And so... I guess until they get the field across those lines they don't really acknowledge the changes in position that happened right off the start like basically the start as far as f1 is concerned didn't happen uh, because the field didn't even make it past safety car 2 and so when they did come time to restart the race uh, they reset the grid to what its starting order had been uh, and sort of wiped out all the position changes that had happened uh, at this, at this first start. Uh, another odd little uh, another thing to mention here is that in all the chaos, um, Alex Albin seeing all this unfolding in front of him, uh starts to break hard to avoid the collision Vettel following close behind him doesn't appear to see exactly what's happening and uh, ends up going into the back of Albin and slews him around hard into the wall um, and he has a really nasty nose first uh, collision into the wall, spins back across the track uh, hits Esteban Ocon and breaks his front right suspension though Ocon they were able to get that car repaired uh, to restart the race but uh, Ocon nearly sort of threaded that needle and Alvin's car sort of ricocheting back across the track um, just knocked, knocked him out so one other detail here was um <laughs> he's getting a lot of positive uh publicity for it and I, I, I get that we all we we all love the you know the brotherhood of drivers uh when like you get a moment like George Russell immediately like unharnessing and jumping out of his car and racing to check on Joe. Um, it does appear that Joe was being well cared for by a small army of marshals that were over there. Um, And so I'm not sure like Russell ended up having a whole lot to do, but immediately uh, did sort of want to get over there and see if there was a way he could help out. Um, The funny postscript to that is then he also tried to use that to justify why he should be allowed to start the race again, despite the fact his car was brought back to the pits on a trailer Uh, because he was arguing to the FIA, Hey, I only stopped the car because I was so concerned about Joe and the rules are pretty black and white. Uh, if the car doesn't come back under its own power, race done. Uh, you're, you're not coming back into this. I'm also skeptical that he actually could have gotten around on three wheels. One of them just down to the metal, um, for an entire lap. That seems like, that seems like a really hard car to bring back around without just absolutely trashing it, uh, in, in the process. But it was, uh, people, people loved the gesture. Um, also I kind of cracked up at the fact that the noble gesture was also then turned around to use as a pretty, pretty lame attempt to get back in the race and, uh, undo, undo the mistake. But it did seem like Russell felt, uh, pretty startled and bad, badly, uh, about, a pretty dangerous incident that ultimately he, he caused.
0: Yeah. I, uh, a quote here from RaceFans.net. Uh, Russell says when I saw it was a red flag, I jumped out to see if he was okay. And when I came back M dash, I couldn't quite get the car started, but I just wanted to check with my team M dash. And when I came back, the car was already on a flatbed and the FIA said we couldn't restart. So it's annoying because the only issue we had was a puncture. I can't quite, I don't, really know how to parse this like you couldn't quite get the car started when you stopped or wouldn't you sounds like when he came back to the car after checking on joe but when i came back the car was already on a flatbed so i don't i don't so there was exactly no what's
1: he he had an odd little if you were to sort of track his movements uh, a bit on the track map he, he jumped out of his car at the runoff area ran to check on joe and did you notice he ran back to the pits? Uh, he went, he, he checked on his car, ran back to the pits to talk to his team for a minute, and then sprinted back out to his car. By which point they had on the flatbed, so I think oh. he like went back to his car and was like, "Oh shit, I can't like move this car now." Ran back to the pits to ask if there's anything they could try. May have gotten some like uh, you know fail mode instructions to see how he might resurrect it uh, from over there. But by the time he finishes jogging back to his car. Uh the FIA has already gotten out a trailer Got and it. Okay. To stay
0: done. Um so yes, the race is immediately red flagged and although Joe's crash was the more spectacular once he made it back to the medical center, he was released. Um while Albon was taken to a hospital likely due to the G forces he sustained hitting a wall head on. There's there are G sensors in there and I think there's certain uh, protocols that happen if you if you trip like 50 G's or whatever it is. Um, so that may have been why he was sent to uh, the hospital, but both drivers were okay. I think even despite being pinballed a little bit, Albon uh, said over the radio that he was fine after the incident. So... Uh, Joe, Albon, and Russell are out. A reminder that you can work on your car and change tires under a red flag so theoretically any driver could change to a different tire and satisfy that two compound rule. Um, what was unusual to me was that they not only completely reset the grid but uh, they, they kept the lap count mm-hmm. so we restarted on lap three technically uh, which I don't know where the second lap was because um, didn't we come back into the pits right after the red flag, or did we do another lap? No, because when they brought them out of the pits, they had to go
1: to an out lap to form up on the grid. So that's just how they're they're evening out all the fuel stuff. So lap one is ah, the aborted yes. lap okay. where they'll go into the pits. Lap two is to bring them out of the pits back around to the grid. Of course, lap three is the restart for the restart. Okay, uh you want to take this restart, or do you want me to? Um. Yeah, I can tell you, it's like, my notes are pretty sparse. I'm mostly centered on the action at the front. uh, So you can let me know if you spot something else. But it's a pretty, it's a pretty exciting start. Uh, Hamilton doesn't have the same luck he had. So he ends up sort of being uh, overtaken the start and dropping, uh, dropping back a little bit. But Sainz is absolutely, uh, you know, elbows out to close the door on Verstappen. Well, especially Uh,
0: because he got smoked the first time.
1: Yeah, and he's determined not to let that happen. He fully moves, like, cuts all the way across the track, uh, right up to the edge of, like, sporting behavior, pushes <laughs> hand, Pushes for stopping way hard. Uh, not quite against the wall, but, like, doesn't leave him a lot of room left on the racing surface uh, as they approach Abby. Uh, but doing that does mean that he's left a lot of space open for Perez to come up. Uh, behind him on his left side and Perez does and then they all end up uh, having sort of signs clearly in the front but it is a bit of a four-way fight uh, through through Abby uh, and, and farm heading into village it's right there that I think Leclerc in my view may have saved the day a little bit for Carlos at that moment. Cause Leclerc does something really chancy heading into turn four, which is that really sharp corner, uh, the loop, uh, that sort of leads to, uh, that like short, that very short little straight, uh, that you get before the Wellington straight, which is so critical for overtaking. Leclerc takes a really hard inside line going through the loop, uh, you know, driving into the proverbial wedge, basically there's not, it's not really going to go. Uh, but doing that, he kind of forces Perez to like cover it off and they make contact. And so the two are both completely pulled out of the, the fight for the lead. Uh, at that moment, Perez loses all his momentum and it returns into, it returns to sort of a two horse race at the front. Uh, and, and, this is where both Perez and Leclerc bust up their wings, right? This is, this is mm-hmm. the moment where they, they both end up uh, taking wing damage that will, in different ways, appear to pretty badly compromise their race uh, in ways that are kind of going to reverberate uh, through the rest of the Grand Prix. Uh, but from there, it sort of settles into uh, you know a, 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 pretty, a, a pretty steady running order. I don't know if you
0: caught anything else there that you wanted to single out. Uh, I mean, Norris got by Hamilton for fifth, uh, as they come onto the back straight and it's just like, this is one occasion of many in this race where it's just like wall to wall, wheel to wheel racing. And you almost don't know where to look because everyone is fighting. It's, it's kind of unlike anything I have seen in F1 for a long time, maybe ever. Uh, this race is just, it's an outlier. Um, Lap six, DRS is available, and Hamilton takes back the place uh, from Norris. It's now fourth place after Perez uh, has a pit stop to fix his front wing. Uh, lap 10, Signs is leading Verstappen, uh, but Verstappen's sticking with him, so when Signs has a wobble at turn 14, briefly goes off the track, it is enough for Verstappen to steam by for the lead. But it doesn't last long because Verstappen suddenly starts slowing, and signs repasses him for the lead, Verstappen thinks he's got a puncture. Um, his team tells him uh, it's bodywork damage. He does pit. Uh, we learn later that it is damage to the floor of his car. He did not have a puncture. Uh, and uh, it was apparently from him hitting debris from a collision that happened on lap 11 between the two Alpha Tower drivers uh, that had just occurred, which itself was an odd incident. Tsunoda going up the inside of Gasly, who kind of turned in and th- they collided and they both, uh, spun kind of like a synchronized fashion. It's kind of strange. It was, it was a strange looking one because synchronized is the way to put it. it. It was a bit like both the cars did the
1: same thing, even as they, uh, lost control. Um, just quick, thing I want to note there, uh, like in lap six, that's where, uh, Perez stopped. Uh, to get that wing repaired, and came out on the mediums, mm-hmm. and so he ended up shuffled deep into the order and appeared to be out of the picture uh, for yes uh, for for a lot of yes. the grand prix. Uh, Leclerc was on the radio asking about like what like asking about his status. Uh, you know, he'd lost quite a bit off that front wing. Was told he was uh, down five points of downforce, um, so he should expect some uh, some some pace issues, but. The way that ends up pace issues around Leclerc um kind of became very much to the point right after uh Max is, is left to struggle with these these uh with with this broken suspension now, or not suspension, but uh this sort of compromise floor damage. Uh floor damage, yeah. Um because Leclerc is really close on signs now uh, as they're running one, two, and he starts consistently arguing for being let through. He says he's got more Mm pace. Um, He's uh, grousing that he is, his race is being badly compromised uh, by, by Carlos not uh, being faster. And he says he should be let through. Uh, He'd also said he expected uh, heading into this weekend that he would be let through if that was what the race strategy uh, suggested for a Ferrari one two. Um, how did you so? How did you evaluate this? Because I think this is like sort of the first controversial call that Ferrari has to make uh, over this race. Not their, it is not their signature controversial call that they're going to make this race. But I'm curious, mm-hmm. what did you make just of the entire dynamic around this? Um, do do you think they do you think they left
0: it too long? Do you think they should have moved Carlos? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough to tell cuz we get delayed radio messages. Um but it's it felt to me like d- shouldn't you have contingency plans for this stuff? Um you know, when when this comes up, okay, you tell the driver in front you have to hit this delta time, which is what they eventually did. They said, "All right, signs, you've got to hit, you know, a 329 or whatever." Um and if you, if you don't do it in this many laps, then you let the car go. It just it seemed like they were they took a while to figure that out when that should just be part of the playbook. Um, but that is eventually what happens. Uh, lap 31, Hamilton is leading the race, having stayed out while the Ferrari's pitted, but Sainz in second is struggling on those hard tires that he switched to, to meet uh, his team's target lap time. So after some laps of trying, the team tells him, sorry, it's not enough. Uh, and that he'll have to swap places with Leclerc, which I mean, I felt for him because it's got to be the worst feeling in the world when it's your best chance to win your first race yeah. Um. so with the first part of this I just wasn't sure
1: uh, it's tough to evaluate how real is pace advantage when somebody is following in DRS range of yes. their teammate like that is, that is where I got like is it one of those things where yeah you feel faster because you're getting a 15 mile an hour boost down the straights or whatever it is but that's not real. The minute you're out there in the clear air, you are not going to get that boost. And I assume at that point, without that making up for some, uh, like giving him some free lap time via DRS, I got to believe that front wing would become more of an issue uh, running in clear air. But yeah, like it, it was pretty cut and dried uh, later when they when they did have to make the call to uh, swap him around to close the gap on Hamilton. Um. Hamilton also felt like maybe Mercedes had left the decision to go to the hards a little bit too long. I, I am convinced they were trying to wait, wait out to slows, but uh, to to soft tires, by the way, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. like, I don't think it makes sense for them to have delayed that long to put on hards. Um, I do think that they were sort of dreaming that maybe they could get him on another fast tire um, so that he could really like gain those positions back but he just didn't have the longevity uh in the medium. He he got really far on it. It was a it was a pretty epic stint. Uh mm-hmm. but I do think when his performance began to go away, uh they were forced to default to the hards strategy um at a place where now they'd actually given some ground to Ferrari. Uh and left him with there there was a chance on like lap I want to say like 28, 29 where there was a chance he might have held on to one of the spots from the Ferraris. Uh, By the time they eventually pulled him in, uh, I think he was unsafe to both. Uh, And then he had a slow pit stop. Um, And so, but it didn't appear to be day done, right? Because the Hards had a long, like, uh, sort of warm up time uh, Mm -hmm. this weekend. Everybody had, like, terrible laps, uh, you know, at the start of their stints on Hards. But Hamilton was starting to really, like, draw closer to the ferraris and appeared to have more pace on the hards and it began to look to me like um you know catching is one thing passing is another but he seemed like he had a very very good chance maybe to pull out a win uh thanks to like superior tire wear and uh better better pace on the hards except lap 39 mm-hmm. esteban Ocon. Starts to slow down dramatically uh, coming around Woodcote uh, in front of the old pits.
0: Yeah. One more wrench being thrown into this race. Apparently a fuel leak. Uh, he stops the car, brings out the safety car. So I had to rewatch it because I was like,
1: how how bad was Ferrari's decision making? Mm. I cannot believe how badly they choked this away. It's excruciating. <laughs> okay so when the car is pulling off uh around Woodcote like it's slowing down the flat the yellow flags are coming car are coming out leclerc in the lead uh is not even through maggots and beckets the virtual safety car is called um and he's coming down hanger and then the The full course caution safety car is called, and he's coming down Vale. Um, Now, Vale's where you have to make the decision to enter. But it appeared to me like he had, even after the safety car was called, he still could have made it into the pits. But he should have, like, Ferrari had to have known a safety car was coming. This was not a, we're going to run under under virtual car, and like... (laughs) The game, like the, that, Ocon's car is going to be magicked off the track or something. Right. Uh, this was a clear safety car situation, and they had about a
0: third of a lap uh, at slow pace to call Leclerc in for the free pit. Yeah, I, I heard the commentators say they had eleven seconds, which doesn't sound like so much, but I think kind of is, especially when don't you have? I just don't you have computers telling you at every point here's what to do in the event of a safety car. It's not even a hard decision. Isn't that what your computers are there
1: for? It's 11 seconds to make an easy decision. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's yes, I don't understand how you get this so wrong. The The only thing I can think is we've talked about it before. Having track position, especially when that track position is P1 in the lead, I think inflicts some really powerful, like, delusion and terror into the decision making <laughs> process uh and maybe they were really terrified that like somehow if he went in and like Hamilton stayed out or something like that that like they would never make up that ground which is absurd because obviously like if he went like he could have gotten off the hards they were now everybody was in range of finishing the race on mediums uh you know it would have been would have been a very, very easy decision uh, to make, but they, they don't make it. Uh, so he stays out on hards. Everybody behind him uh, pulls in for, pretty much everybody goes to softs at this point, right? Or is it just Hamilton?
0: Uh, I think most most everyone goes to softs. Um, um, they <laughs> asked by Autosport here, um, why, why Ferrari pitted signs instead of Leclerc. Uh, Team Principal Mattia Bonato said it was, quote, too close to stop both of them. So they would have had to do a double stack. Yes, the double stack, Uh, which, again, like to your point, Rob, that's scary when you're leading the race. The other thing that happens a lot of the time is that, you know, a lot of when you're leading, everyone can do the opposite to you. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is one of those cases because like safety car, everyone's tires are kind of old, you, everyone is probably going to do the same thing. Um, but the double stack, I can understand, especially when like I don't know I, well they have had they did have the fastest stop this season. Have they had good stops every time? Don't know yeah I mean, but you, like even if it goes I do suppose
1: there's the there's the small risk of like a double stack can be a slow stop. But a double stack, I think also radically raises the risk of something like that happened with uh Russell and uh Botas a couple of years ago at Bahrain where you have the the wrong tires put out like you are you know what I mean like sure. you go from the the two tire supplies supposed to be cordoned off from each other if you're doing a double stop, I do suppose at that point you have created a very decent possibility that a big mix up happens. That like is terminal to the race. I can I may, like yeah. that is defensible, but I still I still look at this and I'm like, I don't even think the double stop was going to be that stacked. It wasn't like they were
0: going to be coming in bumper to bumper. I think they had a little more space than that. Um, it's. I, I think also you have to maybe if you you know if you're if you're the team you've got to think about who you're going to be fighting all on the same tires at this point. You've got. An end plate missing from Leclerc. Um, and it's not just Hamilton because on the restart, look who's in fourth place. It's Sergio Perez.
1: Right, because even like 30 seconds back, he was, like, he was in fourth place, but like a mile behind. Not going, to get, yes. not going to be a factor for the rest of the race. But yes, the safety car brought the fastest car on the grid back into striking distance of the lead.
0: Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, so yeah. why would you give up track position? Uh. Or or yeah. Even even risk it. So, so yeah. um. Well
1: the so and then we get more weirdness on the restart. Ferrari's kind of in a full like they're tilting at this point because to try to save Leclerc, they're telling Signs, "Hey, could you back up the maximum ten car? Oh my god! To yes. give him breathing space." And Signs doesn't outright say no. But he says, please do not make me do this. We are like, this is not going to work. It's just going, it's not going to like save Charles. And it's like, it's just going to leave me vulnerable uh, to Hamilton. We can't like, that's, that's not going to work here. Um, he says, stop inventing. (laughs) Interesting turn of phrase, but I basically, I kind of agreed. It's you're, you're being too smart for your own good. Yeah. Um, and, And I think he was right because. Yeah, he could have backed off the 10 the 10 car lengths which is not really very much uh you know given the, the given the speed of uh F1 cars but also it almost always bogs the person down who's like trying to stack up everyone behind them. Once mm-hmm. once Leclerc goes nobody's obliged to wait for signs to go. So once like Leclerc goes rocketing off um into the distance signs who would have been like carefully managing his pace and like crawling around the track, um, would have suddenly like been in a sort of a reaction race, uh, against all the rest of them. I think like, I think it was a terrible idea from, from the Ferrari pit wall, uh, that fortunately for everybody signs just kind of waved off and they, they back, they, they sort of shelved the idea. Uh, and we got a hell of a, we got a hell of a restart. Like this was the best, Five, 10 minutes of racing
0: of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, easily. I mean, Perez immediately starts hounding Hamilton. The two of them go side by side. And then we cut to the leaders going side by side. Uh, you know, <laughs> Leclerc on his old hard tires dips off the track and allows signs to take the lead. And in the background, Perez then gets by Hamilton. And and you're right, Rob. From here on out, there are just so many battles Uh And they're all fantastic, but the one that made me yell excitedly at my television was on lap 45 when Perez and Leclerc were battling wheel-to-wheel for second. Uh, Perez cuts a little too much of a corner and Leclerc goes wide, opening the door for Lewis Hamilton to speed past both of them into second place in front of his home crowd, which gives an enormous roar uh, but the battle is not done because on the next lap, Perez gets by Hamilton and then Leclerc does. Then Hamilton comes back at him, but it's not enough. Then Fernando Alonso comes from out of nowhere, followed by Lando Norris. So now there's five cars, all of different colors, within a car length of each other, fighting through the corners with six laps to go. It is like a MotoGP race. It is awesome.
1: And the crowd noise like this, they, yes. they do not mic f1 races to be particularly like they do it like it's not like a football football broadcast where like sometimes fox will open up the mics on the crowd a little bit to just create more of a you are there feeling like in general f1 tv is not like piping in or trying to amplify crowd noise uh during the sequence it was some of the most like intense crowd energy i've ever heard like dwarfs what we saw last year uh and that was where Hamilton was winning. Uh you know, it was him and him and for or like him making his uh fight back to the front. This was just such a thrilling uh yeah, three, four, five cars uh in a in a melee uh that was just absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um you know, it, and it did feel like there was a bit of uh once that restart gone like gone on a little bit, like the Mercedes didn't have the pace to contend with the, both the Ferrari and the Red Bull. Um, you know, he ends up sort of being left behind. Uh, but but for, for a minute there, it was just absolutely white knuckle stuff. Uh, totally thrilling. And Signs is the big winner. Um, having, having all this chaos erupt behind him, he gets a very leisurely drive to the victory at that point uh because it all all of this uh is taking seconds out of people's lap times um as yeah. as they brawl and so what just like a lap or two later he was four up uh on the on the rest of the peloton as
0: it were <laughs> right yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah he eventually he finishes uh 3.7 seconds ahead of uh second place but yeah i i, I after that that Uh, restart melee a few laps later Hamilton takes another crack at Leclerc and does get by Leclerc barely hanging on with his old tires Uh, but of course Leclerc comes back repasses Hamilton who then gets DRS and retakes third place it's just non-stop Um, but out in front signs does bring it home oh and we forgot Mick uh Mick Schumacher has quietly like advanced through
1: the field throughout this race Uh and was dogging Max Verstappen the entire way around for this last stint as well? Uh, Verstappen's on, yeah, he's like on half a car. Uh, but that also <laughs> means he's basically squarely in the Haas performance envelope. Uh, and it was some real—that was some really great shit too. Uh, yeah. As they as they sort of duked it out, um, had like it was some really. Uh, Robust racing, they were both uh being pretty aggressive uh Max was being as wide as possible, but i don 't think like nothing I saw was in the vein of like some of the moves we saw from him later last year um, yeah, it was, it was yeah it was it was it was really like tough defensive uh driving, and I think Mick probably did drive a little more cautiously, but I think this has been the f- problem with the Haas's this year is they get so hungry for those marginal positions that are gonna be really tough for them to take and hold um that they've left a lot of points on the table and this time you know mick took
0: his shots uh but in the end banked a fair number of points for the team yes i knew it i knew it it was gonna happen it happened this uh this weekend not even halfway through the season But yes, Carlos Sainz brings it home in anything but a straightforward pull-to-victory drive. Uh, Sergio Perez in second and Lewis Hamilton in third, uh, rounding out the podium. He scored some kind of record for the most podiums at a single track or something like that. Um, Charlotte Clare comes home in fourth, then Fernando Alonso in fifth, Lando Norris in sixth, Max Verstappen in seventh, Mick Schumacher in eighth, Sebastian Vettel in ninth, and Kevin Maguson, the other Haas, in tenth getting a good haul of points for Gene and team. Uh, in 11th, Lance Stroll. Then we've got Nicholas Latifi, Daniel Ricciardo, and Yuki Tsunoda. The DNFs are Legion. We've got Okan, Gasly, Botas, uh, Russell, Joe, and Albon. Botas, I can't remember if we heard what happened, but he did go out of the race with some technical problem. Uh, so We're not running a, great. a Fer- Ferrari power plant, so... Yeah, well decent I mean I don't know, but like it's a
1: decent bet.
0: Yeah. Uh Hamilton scored an additional point for setting the fastest lap of the race. So let's read down the driver standings, everyone. Max Verstappen still on top with 181 points. Sergio Perez's teammate in second place with 147. Then we've got Charlotte Leclerc in third with 138. Carlos Sainz in fourth with 127. Then George Russell, despite going out uh on the first lap. He's still in 5th place with 111 points. But Lewis Hamilton is in 6th with 93. Then we've got Lando Norris in 7th with 58. Valtteri Bottas in 8th with 46. Esteban Ocon with 39. And Fernando Alonso in 10th with 28. Pierre Gasly's got 16, tied with Kevin Magnussen. Then Sebastian Vettel with 15, tied with Daniel Ricciardo. Yuki Tsunoda's got 11. Zhou Guanyu has 5. Mick Schumacher has 4. Alex Albon and Lance Stroll have 3. And it's only Nicholas Latifi and Nico Hulkenberg with 0. In the constructor standings, Red Bull Racing is on top with uh, 328 points to Ferrari's 265. Mercedes is in third with four 204. McLaren's got 73, and Alpine is in fifth with 67. Then we've got Alfa Romeo with 51, Alfa Tauri with 27. Gene Hossett's team, 20 points. Aston Martin's got 18, and Williams has three.
1: Oh, yeah, and a bummer thing. Did Omar Safnauer look like his spirit was broken when Ocon's car went out? Oh, he certainly did. Like, I would, like, I've never seen that man look that defeated. But I was like, oh, no, like they're they're they're
0: getting to him finally. Like the the bad (laughs) luck. Yeah. Uh, We could have had more bad luck, Rob, on this opening lap, if not for the red flag. What's this first news story you're going to uh, tell us about? Oh, uh, so, yeah, this um,
1: this was referred to obliquely on the broadcast, but there was there was there were warnings about this in advance, but there was a uh, protest uh, that was planned for the opening of the British GP, and multiple people breached the fencing and were planning on running out onto the track uh, as the race got underway. The red flag slowed the field down uh, and prevented them from running into sort of a, a live racetrack, uh, and and marshals and police were were sort of. Um, trying to corral them as uh, as the cars went by. We don't see this stuff on TV because, like, it's pretty universal in sports now that like people rushing tracks or, or playing surfaces uh you just don't you you don't film it uh this is primarily for stuff like streakers and and stuff but uh it's it's pretty universal the two things you're not going to see is like a uh in the case of Joe like a chancy accident where we don't know what the status of the driver is and then you don't televise uh people running onto an active pitch or field or a track um either for attention or to bring attention to a cause so it gets a little bit So, these people are facing charges. I don't know how serious those those charges are going to be, but they're uh, from an organization called Just Stop Oil, and they're pretty much what you might expect. Uh, It's a keep-it-in-the-ground climate activism uh, group. And what's very funny uh, I, sure, I sure know this on Twitter I guess maybe before he'd been filled in or just maybe before PR had gotten to him uh, Hamilton had gone on the record saying that it was awesome that people are willing to stand up for the planet and we need more people like that uh, in this world and Mercedes PR later in the day were like obviously he was defending the right to protest but not endorsing the, the means um, and there's been a lot of uh, you know there's been a lot of discussion around this um you know we we saw the f1 f1 management like Domenicali uh called it a a, a completely uh you know stupid and irresponsible and and reckless act um, autosport had editorial talking about uh how you know this is kind of not the not a, a proper way to protest it's it's too dangerous for marshals drivers for the protesters themselves uh to to do stuff like that Landon Norris made the same observation that uh, doing something like this puts puts a lot of people at risk uh you know as you might expect uh Vettel had a slightly like more measured response uh you know sort of acknowledging that this is a really serious issue but also there's really se- serious safety implications uh when you when you do protests like this um like for me when i look at this one I understand that anybody like really sort of associate with F1 can't really go out there and be like, yeah, that protest rules. That's awesome. When people do that, you can't do it. You can't, you can't be encouraging people to be like, yes, absolutely. Come and come and run onto our racetracks. Um, and, uh, and protest, uh, at the same time, like, you know, I don't know where you're at on this, but like for, for me personally, I look at this, like, there's always going to be people who are saying like, oh, we support this cause, but like, this is not the right way to protest. This is too disruptive. This is too dangerous. Um, you know, the, like there's there's a time and a place and and this isn't it. Uh, you know, we, we like your cause, but we don't like the tactics. Um, I look at this and. There's kind of two things that come to mind. Uh, one is that successful social justice and activism campaigns historically have been a hell of a lot more disruptive than anything we've seen from like climate activism and protests to date. Um, the parallel that you immediately, uh, that immediately comes to mind with something like this, when we talk about like, you know, how dangerous it is, is, you know, in 1913, uh, a British suffragette stepped onto a horse racing track, uh, at the Epsom Derby and was run down by a racing horse o- owned by the king. Um, and it's it's unclear as to what the plan of the protest was, but she was sort of immediately identified uh, as a martyr. And at the same time, like you saw similar reports in the press that it was a, a stupid, suicidal uh, means of protest. It was also a really galvanizing one uh, and sort of fit in with what is often forgotten uh, as being a pretty confrontational and frequently... Violent uh movement to grant women the suffrage uh in the u k and so when I see things like this and some of the reaction to it, I see a lot of people who have a really distorted view of how progress has actually been achieved, like in history um, and I also look at a situation where I love F1 racing. I want to see a great race. I want races to be safe. Um, but also, I've seen the climate issue kicked down the road throughout my lifetime until we're confronting a lot of really terrifying ramifications that are with us right now. Um, and F1 is a sport underwritten. By oil companies that have adopted a strategy of denial and greenwashing in the face of these pressures. It's an extremely legitimate protest target. And it is exactly the sort of thing that you might expect activists to want to try and disrupt. And yeah, to an extent ruin uh, and, and render kind of a grim spectacle as a way of bringing into focus um, the risks that we're all being forced to run to keep this industry, uh, you know, fat and happy. So, like, I'm like, I am very sympathetic to the safety concerns, and I think anybody whose priority is safety um, has to say their things they're saying. But when I look at some of the discourse around this this protest and the tactic adopted, um, I see a lot of pearl clutching uh, that I think is a little bit. Polianish when it comes to the historical record, uh, and a little bit too too much playing into the hands of the respectability politics uh, that crop up whenever people are actually in danger of taking like meaningful uh, confrontational action.
0: Yeah, I, I find myself nodding along uh, to uh, everything you're saying. Uh, I, I, I one thing I'm kind of thinking of is. You know, if if we hadn't had that first lap incident and they got around to the protesters and like something bad had happened. um, I wonder if it would have. I I have to believe that if if like a crash had happened or if someone got had gotten hurt, that wouldn't have. Or wouldn't have uh, put the cause of the protesters in a positive light. I don't think the media coverage you would have gotten would have been um what they wanted necessarily. I think th- their their uh optimal uh outcome would be, you know, they they get avoided, uh you know, nothing no one gets hurt, but they get a lot of TV time and a lot of uh, and as as there are, there are a lot of uh, articles written about this. So, it just it seems like it's so left to chance. Um yeah. That it 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 does it's it's reckless, but I think, like you said, Rob, uh, I I completely understand uh, their frustration because I have frustration too because it's like I mean, what, in the United what States, we, what else are we going to do? Who who is doing anything?
1: Like life in the Rockies and west of the Rockies is like being profoundly changed right now um, because yeah. of this. this. Is happening around the world, but yeah, I'd like that. That's kind of it. And I think to the point about. I think press coverage absolutely would have been even more hostile if something really awful had had happened. At the same time, press coverage is already pretty negative. I, I like the other thing is I don't think everything should be analyzed through the lens of does it generate positive press coverage from a press that is often uh in in my view tends to be so focused on like preserving the status quo and like maintaining just stability. Uh, that it ignores the value of ignores the value of a lot of other uh, like actions and, and and protests and causes, but I think you know if you if you imagine okay what if something really horrible had happened um, would that have necessarily been a net defeat for the cause? I think maybe in the press it would have been, uh, but at the same time part of what campaigns like this are also meant to do is create a feeling of like insecurity and fear about your ability to maintain uh, stability and, and run events like this uh, without an interference uh, independent of also ignoring like the climate crisis, um, yeah. you know, red, like there's some power in this happening uh, and sort of reminding people that it's going to, it will get harder to like run a safe and secure F1 race. Uh, as long as the people behind F1 overwhelmingly, Uh, are reaping record profits from, like, oil and gas. Um, And we would argue it should get harder for them to do their thing uh, across the board um, as long as they're not actively being a solution uh, to this problem, which, by the way, you can put net zero by whatever year on this. That ain't it. Um, So, like, when we talk about, like, the, the, the sports environmental record, Um, again they've sort of belatedly come around to the notion of yeah we want to have a green image Um, but in terms of what is funding the sport and the companies behind it um, it's absolutely up to its knees filthy
0: yeah and I I would bet anyone uh, on the activist side would say you know yes that may have risked lives doing what they did but we are guaranteeing the loss of life by not doing anything.
1: Um, also, no, weirdly enough, S- signs also gave a weird comment on this. Uh, not weird, but like didn't seem to be quite be towing the line. Uh, I think people have the opportunity to speak out and do manifestations wherever they want because of the right. I just don't believe jumping into Formula One track is the best way to do it and putting yourself at risk and all the drivers. Uh, but you know, he, he he did he did sort of acknowledge that uh, you know again it's a good cause can't necessarily fault people for doing it. You can just question whether it's the the right way to do it. But i mean that stopped short of, I think there's a lot of like pressure to try to turn this into, like a, a huge moral crime. And it was sort of striking how many of the drivers even are not quite going that far. You know, yeah. they will go as far as this doesn't seem safe and we have some safety concerns, but they're not going as far as lock them up and throw away the key, which I think right. is what you, what you would have seen in past years. Especially given yeah. the type of dudes who are up and down the grid.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, a bunch of angry dudes, what's going on in what's the latest in the FIA's porpoising intervention here?
1: Okay. So there's two things. One, I need somebody, somebody who's good at math, right in to explain this formula uh, that they're working on to handle the uh, to to. ...to handle the the porpoising uh, threshold they'll tolerate. Uh, because I saw something that they are trying to hit... They're trying to target a number that is calculated... ...joules per kilogram per 100 kilometers. Which I think means... ...weight of the car generates how many joules of energy that the drivers have to endure for hundred kilometers of racing. I think that is what that number is getting at. But if somebody okay. understands the actual formula they're using, please Sounds let like us know. Sounds like vibration
0: over time.
1: Yeah. Intensity of vibration over time. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm really curious like what, what sort of uh, mathematical uh, meat is going into that sausage uh, basically or, um, but the FIA appears to have fully come around on, this is an issue they need to address from a safety standpoint. Uh, Nick Tambazis, uh who is the, has the longtime head of single-seater racing at the FIA, sort of said it's become increasingly apparent from driver comments uh, that excessive aerodynamic oscillations and car grounding can lead to severe pain, headaches, loss of concentration, with the potential to cause a high-speed accident. It may also reduce the controllability of the car, thus increasing the chance of an accident. Uh, therefore cars with excessive oscillations or high levels of grounding may be deemed to be of an unsafe, a dangerous construction. Um, and, uh, it, it will go as far as the stewards may disqual a vehicle whose construction is deemed to be dangerous. So the FIA, it's not in place yet, but they are fully going to try and come to grips with this issue. They've fully embraced the framing of it as a safety issue, um, and I'm kind of curious that's just being j- driven by like the drivers who've been outspoken on this, namely the Mercedes guys and signs. Um, and, and I suppose Gasly as well, or if I wonder if the FA has a private interview comment like process where like, just, just tell us like, how are you feeling about how the car is to drive? Cause I do think there's teams where, you know, I don't think it would be welcomed at Red Bull if you were like, yeah, actually this year, it's pretty physically rough. I'm um, not going to lie. So I'm, I'm curious what FIA's process is and all this. But the other part of this that's really fascinating is that in the process of like doing research on what's causing this issue and where things stand, the FIA announced they would be enforcing more strictly the guidelines for flexibility for the floor of the car. And Mercedes immediately like, heading for the fainting couch you know our rivals have have exceeded fia uh guidelines uh the the floor is allowed to flex i think two millimeters uh the implication is there's cars out there that may have uh floors flexing as much as six millimeters um and that might explain why some cars just have handled much much better and haven't had porpoising issues like that might be that might be the 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 core issue uh and uh mclaren's uh team principal andrea seidel noted without pointing fingers he said there must be a reason uh why tombazis has put up some clarifications of what he wants to see and what he expects uh, from our point of view, we are happy with this clarification clarification, which isn't technical directive, because in the end it should help us uh that we are all on a level playing field uh playing field um so it's it certainly seems like there was a breach in spirit if not of like the letter um that they might be closing that loophole soon, which I feel like this happens every year. It is just a question of which part is going to be discovered to be flexing a little bit more than it's supposed to when under load. Um, this year, it's the it's the floor.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, apparently, the, uh, the teams will be meeting with the FIA over the Austria weekend. So, be on the lookout uh, for news out of there. We will keep tabs on this process. Uh, but until then... Let's talk about Austria, Rob. What's the lowdown on the Red Bull Ring? Uh
1: yeah, so it has despite having reputation of being a slightly uh, you know, narrow track where overtaking might be tough. the Last few years, that really hasn't borne out. Uh it's it's generated a lot of uh, a lot of really great racing. Uh, the history of the red bull ring uh it is actually a pretty old facility um, It has its roots at the old Ostrike ring uh which was built around an airfield where uh where f one ran uh through through the eighties and in those days, if you see footage from it uh it's a very classic uh old school f one circuit it is basically rolling hills with a uh racing surface uh you know cutting through them but go off the racing surface and you are in basically pastures, uh, immediately. So a lot of, a lot of chancy places to go off, a lot of, uh, you know, turf walls where, where a car could be flipped or, or, or embedded. Uh, but that was the, that was the circuit layout for a long time. Uh, then Red Bull ended up purchasing the circuit, um, and refurbishing it. As the Red Bull ring, uh, after a time, as the uh, A one ring, uh, some of these changes have already gone through, but the the circuit got its modern configuration basically by by cutting the circuit in half and lopping off uh, sort of the one of the more wild countryside uh, portions of the circuit uh, and and putting in a long straight and basically uh, reprofiling a lot of corners and bringing it into conformity with like modern safety standards, so a lot of corners are tighter um, and where there used to be like sort of wider sweeping corners, you now have, uh, a, a wide runoff. Uh, so, and I think that is one reason why this has generated so much good action is because the Red Bull ring, despite the fact that the racing line can be pretty tight, the penalty for running wide in most places, of the corner is pretty mild. You just end up running on more tarmac. Uh, and so drivers are willing to get pretty, uh, pretty chancy when the, when they're going around the, going around the track. Uh, And that's where we've gotten some absolutely great duels, uh, maybe most memorably with like, you know, Max and Charles uh, a a few years back. Uh, As far as the circuit itself, um, you know, it's it's sort of defined uh, by a rise up into the hills. Uh, Coming off turn one, you go around uh, sort of a, a 90 degree right hander. Uh, with with plenty of room, and then you run up a long, slightly twisting straight uh, to one of the highest parts of the circuit, and you come to a very, very hard right-hander and begin descending uh, down into a corner called Schlossgold, and you enter sort of a winding, uh, like, second uh, sector here, which is probably the most technical portion of the track. Uh, A lot of time can be made or lost here, uh, depending on how you... Uh, handle the, the sequence of corners that runs through uh, the, the second sector. Uh, the racing line is pretty tight, and so it's one of those places where, again, if you compromise any part of the sector, that will probably knock you off uh, pace for the duration. Uh, then you will come back out onto a short back straight, leading to what is called the Rint uh, corner, named for Jochen Rint, uh, the posthumous uh, Austrian F1 champion, and that brings you around a fast uh, sweeping right hander. It's kind of two corners, but in terms of how the cars take it, it's it's almost one really. Uh, just a very wide right turn that brings you back onto the main straight. Um yeah, it, it has it has been a reliably enjoyable race. It was sort of the backbone of the F one calendar <laughs> during the COVID year. Uh mm-hmm. where they where they had to run on it uh back to back, I think. Did they have to do that two years in a row?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, the catch is as good as it is on race day, it is also one of the circuits that has a bit of reputation for being a bear on quality day because there is a lot of temptation to try to get the toe And the circuit isn't that long. It's only uh, like two and a half miles long. And so without laps and people trying to gap themselves for their run, this is one of those tracks where you can get those really comical uh, traffic jams of cars, of cars trying to set themselves up uh, for a fast lap. And it can get a little bit uh, dangerous in places. The other thing to note is this is a fairly high altitude uh, track. I'm not sure it's as high as Interlagos, but it's like one of the one of the higher altitude ones. And recent years, uh, you know, see also our previous discussion, recent years has been unusually warm uh, in general when they've when they've run at the Red Bull Ring. And so you kind of have two really tough conditions for engines uh, up there. You have a lot of heat and thin air. And so that also tends to be a factor in terms of how these cars can run and has some implications for reliability. Uh, It can be a really it can be really taxing race uh, on the cars
0: yeah and, and just visually it's one of my favorites because it's just it's so green and undulating it's just a lot of dynamics going on there's a, and i think it's yeah i was gonna say there's a handful of races man like i see them and i'm like we should move to europe <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's got to be fun to uh go to as a as a fan too because it's it's sort of it's not quite a natural bowl but you can see a lot of the track from a lot of the grandstands you know you're just kind of up high and can see across uh, a lot of the hills, so it's 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 fun to look at, um, and uh, it's it's fun to watch. Um, watch for this weekend not only the qualifying and the race, but of course the sprint. It is a sprint weekend, everybody, which means we kick off qualifying on Friday. It uh, Looks to be in the mid sixties Fahrenheit. Um, uh, or uh, 19 Celsius at qualifying time with 0% chance of rain. Uh, on sprint day, uh, also 0% chance of rain, but a little warmer temperatures. That's uh, mid-70s or uh, low-20s. Uh, and then the race, uh, back to cooler temps, 19 Celsius or 67 um, Fahrenheit, and only a 10% chance of rain Though it may have rained, maybe maybe starting with a wet, wet track because there's a higher percent chance uh, before the race starts. And it is one of these places that is a, a little microclimate so unpredictable weather, who can say. Uh, you can join our Fantasy League if you want using the uh, link in the show notes. You can also uh, shoot us an email over at shiftf1podcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up uh, on Twitter at Shift F1 Podcast. I am at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. Uh, that is us around the internet. Oh, but before I do that, uh, let me let me take it to uh, our Shift F1 fantasy standings. Of course, didn't want to leave everybody out of uh, the Britain round. We've got uh, a podium here between... Um <laughs> the Swiss team from user duvet enthusiast called team One. Uh, then we've got Lars's team from Oh boy. I believe this is Denmark. Can you check my math on this, Rob? A red flag with a white cross. <laughs> uh, in any event, it is Lars I think so. Lars's yeah. team Haas Ben. See what you did there, uh, in second place. And then from America, Sane's team, Fast and Ferrarius. Those are your podium positions for the Britain round. Uh, but in the overall season standings, we've got an all Canadian podium. Uh, Michael's team, Leo Speed, is in third place. In second place, Jeremy's team. What's first happening to me? And Ben V's team on top. With Ben van Villeneuve, how did I do on the flag Rob? uh this looks like the flag it looks like the Danish flag, yeah, red field white cross yeah, yeah, okay Whew. all right, uh, that's us around the internet. Shall we take it around the world? That's a rhetorical question because I'm doing it anyway. Formula Two and formula Three are supporting Formula One this weekend in Austria. We've got the camp world trucks. A World Away at Mid-Ohio in Lexington, Ohio <clears throat> for the O'Reilly Auto Parts 150 at Mid-Ohio. In case there was any confusion about where we're racing. The NASCAR Xfinity Series is in uh, Hampton, Georgia at the Atlanta Motor Speedway for the ALSCO Uniforms 250. Uh, the Repco Supercars are at Townsville. One of my favorite names great of any place, place on earth. Yep. Yeah. Uh, GP is in Finland at the Kimi Ring. Spelled differently from Raikkonen. Damn it. But still fun. Uh, for the Grand Prix of Finland. The uh, World Endurance Championship is at Monza for the Six Hours of Monza. Uh, and we got an s We are at the Atlanta Motor Speedway in Hampton, Georgia. The hallowed grounds. For the Quaker State 400 presented by Walmart.
1: Wow, they they incepted advertising uh, after
0: that. Buy your Quaker State at Walmart, I guess. And Formula One kicks off Friday, July 8th at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time uh, on ESPN U. That's Free Practice 1, followed by qualifying at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPNU. That's right. Uh, Saturday is Free Practice 2, July 9th, at 6.30 a.m. on ESPN2, followed by The Sprint at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2. And The Race, everyone, Sunday, July 10th at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2. The Deuce! And that was the British Grand Prix. What a race, Rob. Final thoughts.
1: Yeah, just incredible stuff. Um, one of those things where your absolute best F1 races require a few things going really wrong for a few people uh, to mix things up in a really exciting way. But, man, uh, when you get those situations where everyone's a little bit out of position or compromised in some way, uh, you get some some really special racing. Uh, this This one... Unfair to hold, unfair to expect uh, Austria to generate this kind of excitement. Uh, but I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still riding high uh, from that Silverstone race.
0: Yeah, I, I will note that uh, my own personal race reviews here, uh, as as I've mentioned before, I have a, I have a four uh, four star rating. Uh, this is the first four stars of the year. Four stars labeled bonkers, calling this a bonkers race. Uh, if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, which I could also describe as bonkers, you can do so over at patreon.com slash one Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week.